Welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you for joining us here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. We have a simple goal here on Concord Matters, to seek unity in our confession of the Christian faith through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul basically tells us this is possible by his word in Romans chapter 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We seek this harmony by the Holy Spirit through the study of the clear and concise teachings confessed in the book of Concord. Because you see, the book of Concord is not another Bible, but we believe, teach, and confess that these writings are in accord with the Holy Scriptures, which is our only source and hope. I'm your host, Brady Finnern, District President of the Minnesota North District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. We have covered the truth of the sacraments. We've covered the sacraments of Holy Baptism, the Lord's Supper. We've talked about confession and absolution. And now it's clear that the Concordias, Concordians wanted to make sure that everyone knew the key to the sacraments, which is the promise of God, to give and strengthen the faith of those who receive it. Because it can be an easy as to say, well, you do this, you do this, and the question of faith is never in the, in the conversation. At the same time, we get to a well-known article in our circles that speaks of who should publicly teach and administer the sacraments. It's an important question that has clarity. These articles actually are very short, but they say something that are vital to the Christian and also to the faithful work of the church. So here we go. Open up your Bible and open up your Book of Concord, and let's start confessing. If you have any questions concerning our study of the Augsburg Confession, send us an email, kfuo at kfuo.org, kfuo at kfuo.org. Joining us in the Confession of Christ, we welcome back Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Pastor Crown, welcome back to Concord Matters. Thank you, President Fender. It's a pleasure to be with you in the saints of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Pastor Crown, we were talking before the program today that uh, it's amazing to me how the Lord opens doors for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. So can you tell us, I mean, this is exciting to me. I love this part of Concord Matters to hear how God is at work by his word, by the sacraments, um, by the care of souls throughout the world. And Pastor, you told me some great opportunities the Lord has given you and your congregation. Can you tell us a little bit about that? About one mile from where our congregation is, there is a residential care facility that does nursing care. And I have provided services there on a Friday for the past several years. But recently, the nurses asked me if I'd be willing to serve as a chaplain for two of the floors. Now, I did not ask, but the nurses asked me. They saw the work of the gospel. They saw the need of the individual residents, and they approached me. And of course, I said yes. So now I have uh, extra visitations, one might say, beyond the congregation on Thursdays and Fridays. Uh, the opportunities that God has placed before us during and after COVID have multiplied, and we, we just jumped in with both feet, as we might say. Well, thanks be to God for that. And, and I would encourage our listeners to pray for Pastor Crown and for Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California, because, well, Sometimes the, the mission comes right before us, and, and the goal there is it doesn't matter um, if the person's young or older, the, the goal is to proclaim the gospel. So the Lord bless you as you continue to serve in his kingdom. And Pastor, I think that's appropriate for our time today because we're speaking about 
the church. We're speaking about the use of the sacraments. So I just want to dig right in. For you, our listeners, we are studying the Book of Concord, Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, a reader's edition of the Book of Concord from Concordia Publishing House. And we are in the Augsburg Confession. I mean, this is a lot of fun. And, I, and maybe some of you are like, well, this is a lot of fun. Of course, it's a lot of fun because the clarity that the Concordians brought for us is exactly the same clarity that we need today. So as we've gotten through the sacraments, now we get to Article 13, when it speaks of the title, The Use of the Sacraments, on page 38. Page 38. So join me as we confess the note as we prepare to confess what the Augsburg Confession says. Article 13, The Use of the Sacraments. The note says, God gives the sacraments to his people for their forgiveness, life, and salvation. And this happens as a call forth trust and confidence in Christ, the Savior. By the 16th century, the Roman Church had developed a complicated sacramental system that had transformed the sacraments into meritorious works performed by priests. This was especially evident in the Mass, where priests sacrificed Christ again and again on behalf of the living and the dead. The Bible, however, reveals the key to the sacraments, the promise of God. God attaches his word and promise to the element of the sacrament water, wine, or bread, and gives and strengthens the faith of those receiving them. You can see also the Apology, uh, Article 13. Now, Pastor Crown, we get to, we've gone through the sacraments, we've talked about confession absolution. Why another article on the use of the sacraments? Why'd they put that in there, and, and maybe why is it relevant today? If we step back and look at the articles of the Augsburg Confession, we see them not as separate articles, individuated, uh, distinct, uh, separated, but also distinct, that they have a current mm. that flow into each other. So if you identify what the sacraments are, uh, baptism, Lord's Supper, and you identify absolution, then the current takes you into how they are then used. So they are intimately bound together. Once you've identified what they are, then you must talk about how they are properly used for the sake of the church. Well, what, what amazes me too is we can get caught up in the same discussion today. Can you can you talk a little bit about how that, I mean, that happens today as well, is people can kind of look at the sacraments in a incorrect way. Any thoughts on how that's prevalent today? Well, the sacraments, as Melanchthon identifies here, focus on awakening and confirming faith. So we have a very distinct Christological confession going on here, and also a very distinct salvation-oriented confession here. So the Reformers put before us always Christ and always his work for us. And the church needs that confessed clearly every generation. So what we are saying here through the Augsburg Confession is nothing new. It's what the church has always confessed and will continue to confess until the Lord returns. As we look at the um, this article specifically, it naturally flows because questions arise. Uh, how do we view faith with the sacraments? And I've seen this, I wanted to tell you, our listeners, this, is that you'll see this in today's culture, and I think it manifests in this way, that people will say, okay, so it's about preaching the gospel, it's about administering the sacraments, but that's not very exciting. And I see those people 
those people don't look very excited or that baby doesn't do anything to, you know, be have an impressive picture or to when someone gets baptized and older walk away or something like obviously you did something wrong as opposed to which is what is beautifully confessed here is are we depending on ourselves and how things look or are we depending on the gifts of Christ that which is outside of us doing the work and i want to have everyone think about that language and how you've heard that in the church how i've heard it in the church and how we can address it by god's holy word so let's confess what the use of the sacraments article 13 what the concordians and what melanchthon wrote for us today it states our churches teach that the sacraments were ordained not only to be marks of profession among men but even more to be signs and testimonies of God's will toward us. They were instituted to awaken and confirm faith in those who use them. Therefore, we must use the sacraments in such a way that faith, which believes the promise offered, set forth through the sacraments, is increased. The reference is from 2 Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, verse 3. Now, I'm going to hold off on to the, the, what they condemn and a reminder to you, our listeners, that often in the confessions, it speaks about what we believe, but also it speaks about what they condemn. And we'll get to that as we move forward. Pastor, it talks about the sacraments um, that they were ordained by the Lord. And what's the purpose? What is Melanchthon really trying to bring home here? To set Jesus before the eyes of God's people, to keep the faith and the promise of God alive. So there's nothing else for the church to see in this world except our Lord Jesus Christ. One might summon Hebrews 12, fixing one's eyes upon Jesus, and that's our sacramental theology, which is, of course, Christological, Jesus-centered. So faith throws off the promises of the world, and faith holds on to the promises which God has put in these particular places. So at that point, it's all about certainty. Where God has put his promise, where God has put his son, Jesus Christ, that's what the Christian holds on to. Can you, can you say that line again? Faith takes off the promises of the world and puts on the promises of Christ? Say that again for us. Well, it would be similar to what our Lord says in um, Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark 8 or Mark 10 about being a disciple of Jesus. You take up the cross, therefore you discard the promises of the world, of reputation, of power, of authority, and you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which would mean holding on to the promises, uh, holding on to his promise of death and resurrection, which would lead us right to our baptisms, baptized into his death and resurrection, fed that same meal until he comes. So fixing the eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, where God has put his promise. So speak about this for us. As our listeners hear this, it is at the end of the day, we will hear a lot of people say, well, that's not very exciting, Pastor Crown. Um, what you're saying is that you baptize, you preach, you teach, you give the sacrament, and then you're fixing your eyes on Jesus. Well, that that sounds very simple, almost too simple. It should be more complex and more exciting. And how would you address a member or someone you meet, like in your facility that you're visiting? 
about such a, a question or thought? Well, when I head down into my basement in the, in the parsonage, the basement is not very exciting, but without the basement, the walls are not going to stand. And my mm. car tires are not very exciting, but if my car tires don't work, I'm not going anyplace. And there's a tower in San Francisco called the Millennium Tower, and its foundations are wonky, so people are wondering what will happen to the tower. If one sees the sacraments as putting Christ before you as the foundation, you have to look at the, the sturdiness, the robustness of God's promise, and not judge them by the world's excitement or the standards of entertainment. One sees the fundamentals and everything built upon that. So you need something enduring, like a living Christ, to, give, to be given to us. Uh, otherwise, whatever might be exciting in the world will certainly collapse. And I love the language he uses. They were instituted to awake and confirm faith in those who use them. To me, that's pure gold for us to think about is when, when someone comes to worship, that their faith would be awakened and confirmed as they come to receive the sacrament or they come to receive uh, the word of God or when they bring their child to be baptized, that, that this child will be awakened and confirmed in faith. And to me, there's a certain amount of uh, excitement to that. I'm not sure how we would get that excitement out. We don't want uh, um, a big celebration, I guess you would say, in an inappropriate way. But to me, that's, that's pretty exciting for us to think. Can you unpack that a little bit that you mentioned it before, that line? They were instituted to awaken and confirm faith in those who use them. Well, one might compare the divine service to blowing on the embers of baptism if one thinks about awakening and confirming faith that what is glowing because of the world's uh, desire to extinguish faith, you need the Holy Spirit, and I'm not being an enthusiast here, to, to blow over the embers, as it were, to renew the life of baptism, to bring forth that strength of faith by the Lord's Supper. So the, the excitement there is one's life in Christ to know that the excitement of the world can never endure, can never replace what God has given in Christ. Uh, yes, in the end of the day, it is very simple, but simplicity is what we see in terms of the certainty. So God says, look here. And I love simplicity in that fact. One doesn't have to create works. One doesn't have to create orders. One doesn't have to create uh, new liturgies. It's simply right here. And it's amazing to me to think about um, for example, the prayers for worship that we find in our Lutheran service book. And I, I do think, it, as I look at the, the hymns for uh, the Holy Baptism and also the Lord's Supper, there is this language that when you receive baptism, that God's own child, I gladly say it. I mean, this is 594 over and over again. There's, there's an awakening and confirming of faith. At the same time, you look at the Lord's Supper, and how many of those hymns exactly speak this language? It's not a, you go up there, you sit down, okay, no big deal. Like, no, this is actually doing something. At the same time, before we commune, uh, there is a prayer in the front of the Lutheran service book. And I just wanted to read that to you because this reflects exactly what Pastor Crown is saying. Before communion, dear Savior, at your gracious invitation, 
I come to your table to eat and drink your holy body and blood. Let me find favor in your eyes to receive this holy sacrament in faith and for the salvation of my soul and to the glory of your holy name. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. It speaks so clearly about not only are you receiving the body and blood, which is what we've been discussing, the, the, the uh, obviously the forgiveness, but salvation itself. So you're going up there and receiving salvation. To me, that that captures everything that your 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 faith is awakened and and you're confirming your faith that day. So any thoughts on um, how it's reflected, even in the hymnal, uh, our prayers, our hymnody, this this very language. Yes, I would say that we're not we're not looking at a a generic faith that might say, oh, everything will work out well. There's a, a silver cloud behind every, a silver lining behind every cloud. Uh, smile, God loves you. We're not looking at that kind of secular faith. We're looking at a mm. specified faith, uh, a special faith that is attached to this particular act of God, a crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ who has given himself entirely and to be anchored there not in the wisdom or strength of the world, but rather in God's foolishness, God's weakness. And so it continues. So he speaks about that, that sentence. Therefore, you know something's coming when he says that. Therefore, we must use the sacraments in such a way that faith, which believes the promise offered and set forth through the sacraments, is increased. So let me, let me break this down even further. What is the promise that is offered in the sacraments? Well, the promise would be nothing less than receiving the entirety of Christ. Well, Christ doesn't break himself into pieces to fractionalize himself. He gives himself entirely. And so the promise would be to hold on to Christ and everything which he gives, which would be, of course, his death his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand of the Father. Uh, Paul speaks about those in three verbs in Ephesians chapter 2. So you are a co-heir with Christ, not partially a co-heir, but entirely a co-heir. And therefore you have everything which he himself has. Down payment being given right now. So whatever the world might suppose about you, One's faith is anchored in what God has said. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, which they reference here in the Confessions. This is Paul speaking to the, the Thessalonians. Paul says, We ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Pastor, this brings up another question, which is very clear in this confession, also in the scriptures, that people's faith is growing. How would you describe that without it becoming something that leads us to more fear? Because is my faith strong enough? Because then the focus becomes on faith. But yet, clearly, our faith grows. How would you unpack that for us? Well, a, a bond between a child and a parent will grow not because of the desire of the child, but because of the faithful love of a parent. So we mature as children, even through our adulthood, because our parents are continuing to give to us. So one might use that as a, as a weak temporal analogy for our faith that our father grows us to retreat into an agrarian 
metaphor, our Father grows us by giving more and more of himself, uh, showing us his will. Now, Paul says clearly in Philippians 2 that it is God who works or wills and works in us according to his good pleasure. And our Lord says in John 15, that without me you can do nothing. So we are bound to him. So to have Christ within us, literally with the body and uh, uh, blood of Christ, that is the root of the faith that grows. So what should we do? Go to the sacrament on Sunday. Uh, with joy, receive the body and blood of Christ. Uh, make the sign of the cross each morning when you awake and when you go to sleep. Uh, read the word because there you see that the word will take you back to your baptism. And there the word, word will direct you to the, the banquet uh, that we have as a foretaste of the marriage feast of the Lamb in this kingdom. Let's continue on to the condemnation. We receive all this promise, and I encourage our listeners to once again look at our, our baptismal hymns, uh, the baptismal life hymns, but also the Lord's Supper hymns. And as I mentioned in the front of your hymnal, uh, for those in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregations, it has a wonderful prayer before and after to remind you of the use of the sacraments and what is happening and also the promise that you receive. So it continues in the confession on Article 13, use of the sacraments on page 38. It says, therefore, they condemn those who teach that the sacraments justify simply by the act of doing them. They condemn those who do not teach that faith, which believes that sins are forgiven, is required in the use of the sacraments. So we know what we believe, but Pastor, what do we not believe? And what was the issue then and today? So we are looking in two directions with a condemnation statement. One toward Roman Catholicism. We've heard the phrase ex opera operato, which suggests that simply by walking through the act, you are you, you gain a benefit from simply walking through the act. That would be the first condemnation. The second would be referring to the Protestants who are Reformed, uh, Zwingli and others, who simply regard the sacraments as ordinances as, one might say, legal requirements of the Christian faith. So we would condemn those who say that it is a work that one does. And that's the similarity in both of these condemnations. Both of these look like a sort of works justified by the outward act and justified by doing the ordinance of God. Now, one might understand, do this in remembrance of me as part of that ordinance idea. But when, when, but when you explore the idea of, in my remembrance, it probably for me, and this is a strong opinion that we're looking at what God remembers of who Jesus is and not simply or only the facet of our remembrance. There are many passages which speak of God remembering Abram or, or Noah and remember his mercy. And that's the basis for confidence in the sacraments. One of the one of the realities that we see then, and you've you've broken this down so so beautifully as well, that we see then and also today, is that we will separate the sacraments 
from faith. And because, oh, what, what, what am I doing as opposed to what is the promise, like you said? And in today's world, there is a, 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 there is a, a joy in knowing that this promise is for you. That this is not a, I have to find out more about myself within. Not that I have to do more. We do remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But also knowing that the full Jesus, as you said before, I am receiving now the full forgiveness of my sins and not worried about whether or not I um, have done enough or whether or not I've done this in the right way but to do it in a way that that receives it in faith. And we see this in the small catechism as well. Pastor, with about a minute left before our break, any other thoughts you have as uh, we are, hear the words of the use of the sacraments? Yes, uh, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and also absolution teach us to look not inside of ourselves for certainty or for faith or for God's promises, but to look outside of ourselves in God's particular action in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ and so this particular article teaches us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, what God himself has done as the just God, and who justifies those who have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, right now we need to take our break. We are studying the Augsburg Confession, specifically Articles 13 and 14, the use of the sacraments and order in the church, and we'll be right back. military veteran, engineer, entrepreneur. These are just some of the former careers held by current LCMS pastors, careers that they left behind to serve congregations in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. No matter the background, our Lord calls men who have a passion for the word and a love for serving Christ to be pastors, a sacred, joyful, and essential vocation. If you or a friend have been praying and thinking about becoming a pastor, visit weareyourseminaries.org and put your experience and skills to new use in pastoral ministry. Visit weareyourseminaries.org seminaries.org. And welcome back. We are studying the Augsburg Confession, Articles 13 and 14, on the use of the sacraments in order in the church with Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Now, Pastor, we get to the next portion, the next uh, article, excuse me, of the Augsburg Confession, Article 14. And it's unique, it's very short, but I think it is very important. It was for them, and it is for us. And I just wanted to make sure, because when we look at Article 14, it brings to head everything we've been covering the last number of, of articles, which is the church, what the church is, what are the sacraments, baptism, Lord's Supper, speaking of confession and absolution. We speak of the proper use of all this, and all of this comes together, I believe, when we come to base, the basic question, then who is to bring these gifts to the church? We know all of these things. Now, who brings these gifts? Who is qualified to bring these gifts? So I want to make sure, is there anything you wanted to highlight, basically from Article 7 all the way to Article 13 as we look at 14? Well, we note that Article 5 about the ministry comes before the church which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, the justification brings about the church. And then we have the uh, address regarding the, the, the sacraments. And then you have to come to when those gifts are given to the church, who does administer to administer them to the church? 
So I, I think your, your prologue to this, your preface to this, it must be understood that there is a, a place of distribution, one might say, for the sake of the church. We want to be able to point people in a particular place for certainty. We don't want to create doubt. We don't want to create hesitation. The proclamation of the gospel and that which delivers it is meant to create and engender and support faith. I want to encourage our listeners, and Pastor, you did a great job bringing us back to where we really should be looking, which is Article 5, which does relate very well for us today, is what is the ministry? And it does begin in Article 5, which is on page 33, so that we may obtain this faith, the ministry of teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments was administered, excuse me, (laughs) instituted. And that's something very important because when we look at the ministry, it is always interconnected to the word, the promises, the promise that by his word, he grows his church. And by his word, he chooses men to be pastors in his church. So um, I just encourage you, our listeners, to keep going back to these wonderful, clear confessions of how it all connects. And then how can we not help but go to Article 4 and talk about justification? And I mean, you just go back and forth throughout all of this being filled with the gifts of Christ. But right now, We're in Article 14, and I'm going to read the note and the actual article as we dig deeper into this very important question of order. When this article speaks of a rightly ordered call, it refers to the church's historic practice of placing personally and theologically qualified men into the office of preaching and teaching the gospel and administering the sacraments. No one in the church can take such authority for himself or bestow such authority on his own. The ministry is conferred by means of a formal, public, and official call from the church. At the time this article was presented, it was understood that a minister's first call is is publicly ratified and confirmed by means of prayer and the laying on of hands, ordination, a practice that dates back to the time of the apostles. In the Lutheran Confessions, ordination is a term often used as a shorthand for both the call and ordination. You can see also in the Apology and also the Small Called Articles. Here's the Confession. Our churches teach that no one should publicly teach in the church or administer the sacraments without a rightly ordered call. So, Pastor, let's keep this simple. Uh, Who should publicly teach and administer the sacraments? those that the church has uh, properly trained and recognized. Um, So having said that, we do need to make uh, a glance in two directions. One regarding um, Eck, a Roman Catholic theologian who accused the the Lutheran reformers of doing things higgledy-piggledy. That is, we just do whatever we want without regard for the historical order of the church. That's one direction. And the other is, there were those who were preventing Lutheran ministers from being put into office. In both instances, the the gospel would, would, would be hindered or obscured. That looking one direction, if anybody could do whatever he wanted, then 
Are you sure that the gospel is being proclaimed there? That is, if you take the office yourself, is that not a seizure of the office rather than receiving what Christ has given to you? So one's authority at that point lies in oneself rather than in the gift being proclaimed. So the office would be located in the self. And looking toward the others who would squelch the ordination, the, uh, the recognition of the Lutheran ministers, they were focusing upon the church's authority rather than Christ's authority for the, for the proclamation of the gospel. Well, I may not have been so clear there, but the Lutherans were intent on making sure that Christ has an office, and that office goes on for the sake of the proclamation of the gospel. So instead of looking at the office of the ministry as something that starts with uh, church's power or authority, like the bishops, yes. instead of looking at it starting with me, and maybe my feelings or my own abilities and such that this simple, <laughs> this simple article really says, okay, the authority comes from Christ. Yeah. That, that the gifts come from Christ and, and to make sure that that's the starting point as opposed to those other, the other lists that you mentioned. Correct. It, it's, it reads as if this is some sort of bureaucratic declaration but it's meant, again, to provide certainty for the, the people of God that the gospel, gospel is being proclaimed here, that somebody hasn't seized authority, and this, this is not some sort of institutional decree. But this comes, as you said, rightly from Christ himself. And what are the tendencies we have, what's to say in today's culture, that when how easily we can get to that point where we see it as we chose that pastor um, or the, the district chose that pastor or he chose it for himself. Um, this is my work. I mean, what, what, where do you see this kind of manifest in our world today? The things that they are trying to address then and also that happens today. Well, this goes back all the way to Eve, right? Deciding <laughs> by herself to take the word into her own hand. Uh, the word of somebody else rather than God. And so she wants to take, if you will, uh, somebody, else, somebody else's office. Uh, she doesn't hear what Adam has to say. She hears what the serpent has to say. So this is really about the individualism we want to perpetuate out of that first situation. It's an idolatry of the self. If I say my office, my work. You know, Paul provides a, a corrective for this, a gospel corrective. Now, he's not addressing the ministry. He is addressing the broader calling of the Christian vocation in Philippians 2. But Christ doesn't seize what belongs to him. He becomes servant. So rather than seizing something, we receive the office. It is given to us. As Christians receive various vocations, father, mother, a minister is called into the office, into the ministry, for a particular work. That is, for Christ's work of delivering his word. So I can't seize that. It must be given to me. It was interesting to me as I 
now in this uh, office that the Lord has given me as district president, that there is a reality that when we have an installation of a new pastor, that we go to Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus says, uh, the work is great, but the laborers are few. And what his prescription is, is something that's almost something we can't even fathom in our world today, because if you have a vacancy in, let's just say your work, uh, or even in the church that we'll say, okay, we have to do this, this, and this in order to fill it. But Jesus doesn't say, have a great plan. He doesn't say, make sure everything is, is neatly put together. No, he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to bring workers into his harvest. And so the beauty of an installation, when you have an installation of a new pastor, or um, like I've had this summer, an ordination and an installation of a pastor, that, that you're able to say that the Lord has heard your prayers and he has called this man right here to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. And so we see God at work and we also receive a very clear understanding according to scripture that that is what he is called here to do, to work in the harvest. And the harvest is very clear. Matthew 13, you know, spreading the word of God. Um, very clear throughout the book of Acts that, that they were preaching and teaching. Um, very clear. First, First Timothy 3, um, Titus 1, pastoral epistles, speaks about this is the kind of men that are going to be doing this. It's, it's such an affirmation that this, like you said, this is not my office. It's the office the Lord has given us. And for whatever reason, the Lord has called that person there. In our context, why would I send someone to International Falls, Minnesota, the icebox of America? Or I, I suppose there's a town like that in California. Um, but it's, it's an affirmation that when it speaks about orderly to be called, it really is this great, wonderful um, comfort for the listeners, for the pastor. Okay, God has brought this all together. Pastor, any of your thoughts on that? Yes, when God creates in Genesis chapter 1, uh, his word then empowers what he creates. So let there be. And I think we can use that as a broad comparison to the office of the ministry. That God says, let the gospel be proclaimed, and therefore he provides an instrument, an agency for that very proclamation. Um, to make a comparison to your Matthew 9, I would go to uh, 1 Kings 19 with Elijah and Elisha. Elijah simply has to pass on the word. Uh, he's not given any other responsibility. And the important observation there is that he will die but there will be Elijah after him, uh, if you will, having the same mantle. Nothing that Elijah chose, nothing that Elisha chose was given to both of them. And it was there before them, and it will be there after them. And for the man in the ministry, I have to say that is of great comfort. That I'm not the chain. There's a, a, grand, a grand chain that God has forged in Christ by death and resurrection, by breathing upon the disciples, that I have been put into, and I get to deliver the gifts that God has has worked. Uh, that's the comfort for the for the for the pastor. This past Sunday, I was at a congregation, and when you walked in, right there, actually, you walk in and you turn around. There was a section in the wall where it showed all the pictures from 1881 
until 2003 of all the pastors who had served in this congregation. And it was fascinating to me because you talked to a few people who have been there for a while and they could tell you stories from each one of those individuals. And you see God's hand on it in small yet profound ways where that pastor was there when they built the new church. That pastor was there when they had to close the school. That pastor was there when they had such and such crisis. And then there's times where you have a pastor up there and you don't quite understand why he was there, which is why you have this kind of article, because we can easily say, well, that was a mistake. Obviously, God was not present in that time <laughs> because that didn't work out very well. Um, or you can say, well, God obviously was present there because the church grew or whatever it might be. And pastor, as you, if you, when you hear someone speak that way, kind of like, well, it worked there, it didn't work there. What would you tell them, especially in light of Article 14? about the truth of how God provides for his church? Well, just as we could try to measure the effectiveness or efficacy of baptism or the Lord's Supper by what you see on that afternoon or even two or three days or months later, uh, you could apply that to the office of the ministry. Uh, but I think that's a very um, short-term way of looking at God's work. Uh, we all know that when you plant seeds, and we've talked about this matter before. When you plant seeds, you have a growing season, and you don't judge the harvest by what you see five weeks after you plant. You have to wait many, many months. And for orchards or for vineyards, the maturity and the bearing of the fruit comes much later. I think the agricultural metaphors that Jesus uses have that deep seated connection that there is patience with God's work and that to judge immediately by the standards of the world of productivity of how many people are in the pew or what the budget looks like uh, falls into the trap of the world and therefore we elevate ourselves over the work of God rather than hearing the work of God. So let's, let's take a step back, step back here, even, Pastor, because these are important questions that we always have to ask. One of them being, it speaks about, okay, this individual, this man should be rightly called to publicly administer the sacraments and to publicly teach. But how do you know that this person, like you mentioned before, is correctly qualified? I mean, <laughs> okay, all right, this person was called, this pastor was called. But how do you know they're even qualified? What does scripture have to tell us? Well, in the days of the Reformation, there was behind the phrase rightly called presupposed, and you can read this in the treatise in uh, mm. paragraphs mm -hmm. 62, 63 and following up to, I think it's 73, 74, that there were expectations of examination of the calling and ordination. All three go, to, go together. So when you hear of call, you suppose examination and ordination. When you hear of examination, you know the other two are following. When you hear ordination, you know that the other two have already happened. Uh, we call that synecdoche, a part for the whole. You mention one part, the other parts are supposed. For examination, the, the local pastors would have examined. In Wittenberg, it would have been the examination by the faculty of the university 
to ensure that the man, as Paul says for Timothy and Titus, that this man is qualified in knowing the scriptures, the pattern of sound doctrine, as well as his outward uh, conduct of life, that it doesn't hinder the gospel, either within the congregation or to outsiders. So that would be part of rightly called. Um, so no man puts himself forward to seize the gift. That would be uncertainty. Uh, he is examined by those already in the office so that he is a fit. Um, our vicarage program would be an instrument for that. And our seminary, especially residential, but also, if you will, a mentoring perspective of a pastor and maybe a new pastor uh, developing a growing to see that he is how should I say, uh, maturing as maturing in the office. Now, when we look at the way, there's no set saying in scripture, okay, you want to be a pastor? Great. Go to college, go to a seminary, go four years, you have to have a vicarage, and then you're ready. So why do we as a Lutheran church in America and around the world really have a very, uh, very, a very specific way of training our pastors and to be done in a form that brings it to that day? Like I've had this summer, which is just a, a it's just a powerful thing when a, when a man gets ordained into the ministry that we have a very intricate system that goes into that. And why do we do that? It's not explicitly in the scriptures. So why do we do that, Pastor? Well, it is a good order that supports the proclamation of the gospel. So the order that we have in the Evangelical Lutheran Confession is not to create doubt, but rather to support certainty through the proclamation of the faith. So when a congregation receives a man, and notice we say they receive a man, as much as they have elected, God has given the gift, Christ has given the gift of that man to the congregation that they get to say, this man comes from outside of us. The word is being delivered to us in this person. And this mouth is going to deliver the word. Now, if we say in any part that this, the, the procedure creates doubt or leaves questions unanswered, what does that do to the hearing of the word? We want the word to take primacy and therefore the procedure to keep that word before us, which is to say, no one should ever doubt what this man is saying uh, that is as pastor. Where do you look for your pastor? There is where you look, right there. Uh, that was not a, so clean as it should have come out. <laughs> well, and there is that assurance that when it speaks about in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, it, it speaks about being able to teach is one, that I could tell you that that individual, that man over there is qualified, but, but we also need some, just like you want that for your doctor, you want some vetting, 
for your veterinarian with your animals, your, you know, the people who work as a police officer and everything. You want some vetting to be able to say, are they qualified? And that's why we have that kind of intricate system that is not explicitly saying you have to do it this way, but everything is, is centered. And I've heard Dr. Larry Rass from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. See, he's a president of that seminary. And he has spoken very clearly, how does this bless the church? So to have, a, to have an education, not for the sake of just having more education and more degrees, but for the sake of blessing the church. And I think you said, I know you said it well, with the assurance that this man is able to teach. This man is qualified and he is rightly called according to um, scripture and also the article 14. Yes. Uh, and so pastor is, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I think what you refer to comes up very clearly with both Moses and Exodus chapter three. Moses mm -hmm. complains, I can't talk. And we might have seminarians and even pastors who bring up their own, if I will say, uh, natural inabilities. But the focus mm. is not on that, but rather the deliverance of God's word. And so those so-called super apostles opposing Paul would bring up, oh, he doesn't orate very well. He doesn't speak as well as we trained ones can. And Paul says it's not about that. It is about the delivery of the gospel. If I focus upon my natural abilities, how I look, uh, how I can orate from the pulpit, I empty the gospel of its power. I turn people's eyes away from the cross and towards how I can uh, tickle their ears maybe in some way. And this goes into the next question that I wanted to make sure we had our terms correct. It speaks about ordination in the note. And that obviously is connected to what we're talking about, someone who is rightly called. Tell What is ordination, Pastor? That also is not explicitly in the Bible. How would you teach that to someone? Well, ordination would be uh, the ratification of what God has begun by calling the individual and having trained him and having, as you said, uh, vetted him. And then with the election, uh, by the congregation, uh, that whole process. The ordination brings this to its conclusion to say, here now is the pastor and the church speaks, um, declares this to be so. Um, so you don't ordain yourself. Mm -hmm. It is done to you. So the, the church is saying, this is now the pastor that the church or, the, or Christ has given to this particular congregation. Pastor, with only a few minutes left in our time, why is it so important that the call, you know, that can be something that many people will, will question that well, what is the call? Because is it an internal thing, like you mentioned? Is it is it is it the power of a bishop to be able to call? Why was it important then, and why is this or this article important for us today? As you speak to our listeners, well, if the call is only my internal call, my sense of wanting to serve, I don't see how that gives much certainty to anybody outside of myself. And even if I look inside myself. My own internal call can be like a roller coaster ride. 
So who wants to ride with me on my own roller coaster? I'm not sure anybody wants to do that. <laughs> so the church recognizes that there's an office mandated by Christ. And so the men put into that office by Christ are shaped by his cross for this proclamation outside of the man. That is, it's something given to the man. And so Christ is using that man's mouth, again, outside of the, the congregation. That is, it comes from outside of them, outside of their own hearts. So that does not leave any doubt as to the origin of the gifts. With an office mandated by Christ in AC5, then there is a way to deliver the gifts in AC14. This is how it's given to the church. So look here. Don't look to your own business models. Don't look to the standards of the world. Look to what Christ has given. One final note as we look at this is currently in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and I believe throughout much of the church, not all, everywhere, but much of the church, that we have a very uh, severe shortage of, of men who are going through our seminaries, men who are available to be in the pulpit. And Pastor, as we look at this, there might be a tendency to say, well, how about we just kind of do this a little bit differently? You know, kind of maybe, maybe we just don't take this quite as seriously or uh, or all of this, there's that temptation in any call process and a church is looking for a pastor. Pastor, what would be your encouragement as we we are obviously have a shortage and we what should we as the church for our lay people in the room, our pastors, what would be encouragement to the church as we go through the shortage of pastors in today's world? Well, one might say the church has always been in in, in the emergency situation. That is, the world never stops attacking the church, so therefore we will always have these threats and assaults. This just may be another one that we see more visibly because of the great gifts that the church has enjoyed. Speaking as an American Christian, the, the great gifts we've enjoyed over the past um, couple of centuries. So rather than bemoaning the situation and saying, oh no, we're the only ones left, uh, we should, and I don't want to use the word should, but this is meant to be exhortation. We should pray the Lord of the harvest. And mm -hmm. as Elijah, pray that there is an Elisha afterward. The fact that we are here today says that there must have been somebody after Elisha. And that the ministry has continued, culminating in Christ himself. And Christ himself sent out the disciples. So I, I cannot depend upon the efficacy of the seminaries, the, the power of a district president, all due regard given to you, but rather <laughs> the promise of Christ to continue his church. That he is the one who edifies, that is, brings people into the church by the proclamation. So in some days, the office may seem look very small and hide behind all the troubles of the world. But we know because of Christ's promise, the office remains because the gospel remains. That the office depends upon the promise of Christ, not the other way around. And that's where we take our refuge. That's where the church has her hope in the promise of Christ. Pastor Stuart Crown of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. 
clear the confessing the truth of of what scripture says about the sacraments and the call from the Augsburg Confession. Pastor Crown, thank you for being our guest. God's peace with you and all the saints. I'm your host, Pastor Brady Finner. Thank you for joining us and the Lord keep you safe in the palm of his hands.